Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So 1 Peter chapter 3, and before we start this interesting, controversial, difficult subject, I'm going to read something, and you probably have heard this, grew up saying it, you probably know what this is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Does anybody know what that is? It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the earliest creed of the church. Now, there's a statement in the Apostles' Creed that says, Jesus descended into hell. So the question we have to ask is, is that a biblical teaching or is that a statement that comes from the Apostles' Creed that's not actually biblical? Okay? Because there is this view out there that, hey Dennis, there's this view out there that Jesus went to hell in between His death on the cross and His resurrection. Um, so the question becomes, is that biblical? Now, the text that we're looking at tonight is the proof text for those who tend to believe that doctrine. So let me tell you what Martin Luther said about the text we're going to read tonight. He said this, quote, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So if Martin Luther doesn't know what it means... We'll do our best to figure out what it means. So this passage of Scripture tonight is a very difficult passage of Scripture, which has been the impetus for two major doctrines within church history that I believe are actually false teachings. Okay? So the first teaching that I think is not biblical is that Jesus did, in fact, descend into hell between His death on the cross, and His resurrection. And let me just say right up front, I reject this view and I don't see any biblical evidence for it. Even though it's in the Apostles' Creed, I don't think it is a biblical doctrine. So that's the first doctrine that people get out of this text that I reject. The second doctrine that some people get out of this text that I also reject is that baptism by under the water actually saves you that you need to be baptized in order to be truly saved. So it's not faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. It's faith plus your baptism means that you are saved. We call this baptismal regeneration. Uh, those in the Church of Christ denomination believe this, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Some Pentecostal groups believe that as well. So let's read this difficult passage of Scripture, and I'm going to do my best tonight to help us navigate what it means. You guys ready? So 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. All right, the first part of this is going to be a lot easier than the second part of this. So, what does verse 18 tell us? Christ suffered once for sins. Some of your translations may say He died but in the original language, it's the Greek word pacho. We get the word passion from the Greek word pacho. It means to suffer. So the movie, so some of you guys, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, or you've heard of the passion play, when I was a kid, I used to think the passion play or the passion of the Christ was, it was Jesus' compassion for us that moved him to go to the cross because he loved us so much he had passion for us. That's not what that word means. The passion of the Christ comes from the Greek word pasho, which means suffering. So the passion of the Christ literally means it is the suffering of Christ. I don't know if you guys knew that. So that's where we get the word passion. It's not like Jesus had this great passion. Obviously, he does. Jesus has great passion for us that moved him to go to the cross, his love for us. But that's not what this word means here. It's suffering. And so what Peter does is he gives us four ways in which Jesus suffered on the cross as the centerpiece of the universe, in my opinion, that the, the major defining event in all of history centers upon Jesus is suffering on the cross. So what happened there? Well, let's look at the first thing. First of all, it was a once and for all unrepeatable final event. What does Peter say there? Christ suffered how many times? Once. Okay, what did he cry out on the cross right before he died? It is finished. Okay, so we don't have to go back and try to atone for our sins multiple times. Jesus has finished the work. Um, Hebrews 9.12 tells us that He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay? So pretty, pretty obvious stuff here, okay? Second, though, He suffered once for our sins. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. So he suffered for our sins. Now, notice what else it says there. So this is the third thing. How does Peter describe Jesus? The righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, Jesus never once sinned, so the innocent became guilty so that the guilty could become innocent. Who was innocent? 
Jesus. Who was guilty? So in this passage, who was the righteous? Jesus. Who was the unrighteous? We were. Now, he suffered for the unrighteous. Little Greek preposition for there means on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 basically tells us the same thing. For our sake, he, who, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus did not deserve to die. He did not die for his own sins because he was righteous. In fact, we were the ones that were unrighteous. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so he suffered once for all. He suffered for our sins. He suffered for the unrighteous. But then it's interesting what Peter says fourthly here. This is the whole point. The ultimate goal of Christ's suffering was to bring us to God. To bring us to God. That word bring is a very interesting word. It means to grant access. To give us an introduction into the very presence of God. Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let me ask you a question. If you could have heaven with all the glorious things that heaven has, no disease, no sickness, perfect body, perfect relationships, living forever, streets of gold, but God was not there would you be satisfied with heaven? No. The ultimate end of your salvation is God Himself. That Jesus brings us to God. And what did God do? God validated Christ's obedience on the cross and vindicated Him by raising Him from the dead. The second part of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Okay. Now we come to the difficult portion. That's basically in a nutshell saying Jesus died on the cross for our sins and He rose again. Now, verse 19. In which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay. What in the world is this all about? Does this, in fact, teach that Jesus went to hell after his death and did some things and then rose from the dead? So let's ask some questions of this text. Okay, let's be good Bible students and ask some questions. Who, what, when, where, how, why? Okay. First of all, when did, it, when did Jesus go? Secondly, where did Jesus go? Third, to whom did he preach? Fourth, what was his message that he preached to them? Okay, we're going to try to answer that tonight. 
I don't want to get bogged down in a lot of um, intricate details tonight. And I'm not going to be dogmatic on this because Martin Luther said this is an obscure passage and he doesn't know what it means. So we need to be very careful that we don't build a theology out of a passage of Scripture that we don't fully understand. Okay, So let me teach you guys something. And um, Dennis, you, you know this because you were there last night at Leadership Training Institute. This is called, this is not in your notes, so I'm just going to write it on the board. This is what historically, during the Protestant Reformation, it's historically been called the analogy of faith. Now, let me give to you probably what you know the term more, you probably understand this terminology better. Let me just write it on here, and you probably know this statement more than you know the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what the analogy of faith means. So what do we mean by Scripture interprets Scripture? It means this. When you come across a difficult, obscure, hard-to-understand passage of Scripture, you have to go to what the rest of the Bible teaches on that topic to get the full meaning of what the doctrine is. Does that make sense? So a lot of times you can come to a passage of Scripture and say, I know this is what it doesn't mean based upon all these other Scriptures, but I'm not sure exactly what it does mean. And that might sound like a cop-out. Okay, So is there anywhere else in the Bible that teaches that Jesus went to hell specifically? No. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that says baptism saves you? No. So you got a difficult passage right here with two difficult doctrines that if you just take this passage by itself without the entirety of Scripture and you build a belief system, you're out of balance as far as what you need to be believing. So Scripture interprets Scripture. The analogy of faith means that you've got to look at all the entire counsel of God's Word as to what a particular doctrine teaches to build the full doctrine. Does that make sense? Okay, so primarily in church history, there have been four views as to what this passage means. Okay? So what are the four views? Of he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison during the days of Noah. Okay, what are these four views? Okay. View number one. This is the earliest view in church history. This view states that the spirits that Jesus went and preached to were people who sinned during the time of Noah and they went to hell. So Jesus went down to hell and preached to those people who died during the days of Noah and who were in hell. Now, let me tell you why I don't necessarily agree with this. They were wiped out in the flood. And they did not have a chance to repent after the flood came. So sometimes between his death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus descended to hell to preach the gospel to these people in order to give them a chance to repent. Now, why do I reject this view? I reject this view because nowhere in Scripture are we told that sinners have a second chance after death. Do we ever find that anywhere? As a matter of fact, Hebrews says it's appointed for man to die once and after that face the judgment. Also, did they have a chance to repent? 
How long did Noah build the ark? 120 years. And Peter, 2 Peter, says he, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So as Noah was building the ark, he was preaching about the judgment to come. So these people had a chance to repent, and they didn't, and the flood came. So the, the view is, okay, these are people during the days of Noah who didn't repent. When Noah was building the ark, the flood came. They went to hell. Because they didn't have a chance, because the flood came so fast, Jesus went down to hell and preached specifically to those people during the days of Noah that died in the flood to give them a second chance to, to repent. If they repented in hell, Jesus brings them back up to heaven. Okay. You guys are shaking your head, which, okay, good. Okay, that, now here's the second view. Similar but different, okay? That doesn't make sense, does it? Similar but different. Okay, the second view. The spirits in prison are actually Old Testament saints who died, and they're now in a place called Sheol, which is like a holding tank. They haven't gone to heaven yet. Jesus goes to this holding tank Sheol, proclaims the gospel to them, and takes them to heaven with him. Now, here's the problem with that view. Look at your Bible very carefully. The spirits in prison, why are they in prison? Because they did not obey. Does this sound like Old Testament saints? Okay. The problem with this is that the spirits in prison are defined as those who are being disobedient. So this would not characterize all Old Testament believers. Plus, I think there's evidence in the Old Testament that when Abraham and Moses and all the Old Testament, David, when all of those men and women who were Old Testament believers died, they immediately went to heaven. They didn't go to a holding place called Sheol, and then Jesus had to come get them out in between His death on the cross and His resurrection. There's nothing that says that in this passage. So what we're, what we're left with is what the passage says. Okay? All right, here's the third view. And this, is a, this view I can somewhat buy, even though I'm, I, I tend to not buy it. Okay, the third view was articulated by Augustine, early church father in the 400s. It's got some modern proponents. John Piper believes this. Wayne Grudem, Ed Clowney, Millard Erickson. Um, it was basically Augustine's view to the early church's view that Jesus went to hell. So this is more of a spiritualizing of it. Instead of Jesus actually doing the preaching, what Augustine taught was that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus was present in the days of Noah, and the Spirit gave Noah the power to preach to his generation. And the people that Noah preached to through the power of the Holy Spirit were those that didn't believe and they're suffering in hell. So it's not that Jesus went to hell to preach to people that were in hell. It was that Jesus was present back in Noah's day through the preaching of the gospel to those people. Again, that's kind of a hard view to understand. So again, I don't want to be dogmatic on this because there's people that believe. I think I, think I can reject the first and second, but maybe the, the third and fourth. What's the fourth view? Um, the fourth view is the one that I'm, I'm going to land on. 
not dogmatically. Again, I'm going to say this is my best guess, but after doing a lot of research, weighing the different options, looking at the arguments for, for pro and con, this is the one I kind of land on. Okay, so I'm just going to present to you the fourth view. So let's just ask those questions. Okay, to whom did Jesus preach? Look at verse 19. Let's just look at the text and ask the questions that the text tells us. Not what church history tells us, not what Augustine tells us. What does the text tell you? The Spirit's in prison. Okay. Now, the Spirit's in prison. During what time period? During the days of Noah. So it's very specific. It's... it's at Noah's time period, not all saints throughout Old Testament history, specific to Noah's time period, and the terminology he uses are spirits in prison. Okay, so since Peter uses the days of Noah as his context, I believe the spirits are actually demons or fallen angels who came to earth in Genesis 6 and had relationships with the daughters of men. Now, you think, now what in the world are you talking about, Sean? Genesis 6, 1 through 4, teaches about the Nephilim. And there's some different views about this as well. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they choose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Here's the view. The sons of men were, I mean the sons of God were angelic beings who disobeyed and came down to earth and had sex with human women and produced an ungodly demonic offspring. Now you may say, this sounds like science fiction. How can this happen? This is a common view in church history that Satan was trying to corrupt the earth during the time of Noah. So these spirit beings, these spirits, I think are fallen angels who inhabited man's bodies, went, had sex with human women, produced an ungodly offspring of giants called the Nephilim, and they were all destroyed in the flood like the rest of mankind. Now, what happened to these demons who did this? What, what was the purpose of them coming to the earth? Why did God destroy the earth? It had become so corrupt. So much violence, so much corruption. How did that happen? Well, I think these Nephilim, these ungodly, half-human, half-demonic beings were so wicked that they were. it was Satan's attempt to try to corrupt the earth and basically overdo what God had done. And so that's why God destroyed the earth. But He spared Noah's family. So what happened to those unclean spirits? Where were they sent? 
To a prison, okay? Spirits in prison. Okay, so what's the prison? Or abyss. Now, let me just give you some Greek here, okay? Because this will help you. In the Greek text that Peter writes, there in verse 19, the word spirits is in the plural. Almost always, with that exception in the New Testament, this refers not to human beings, but to angels or demons. Okay? So that's my first argument. Second argument, where did they go? They're in prison. Now, you guys remember our study from the book of Revelation not too long ago. The word for prison is never used as a place for punishment for humans after death. It's actually the word where Satan was bound for the thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Same Greek word. Okay? We also have evidence that demonic spirits are in prison from 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Where did the fallen angels go to? A place with chains and gloomy darkness. Spirits in prison. Okay, Jude 1, 6. The angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He is a kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the great judgment of that day. So, who are the spirits in prison? I think they are fallen angels or demons who during the days of Noah came down and had sexual relationships with women and produced this ungodly offspring called the Nephilim. And as a way to punish them, God sent them into the prison, into the abyss. Okay? Now, where did Jesus go? Did Jesus go down to hell to preach to these demons? I don't believe he did. Verse 19 just says he went. It doesn't say he went down. It doesn't say he descended. It just says he went and proclaimed. Okay. Here's what I take it to mean. I take it to mean, and again, I could be wrong. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. I take it to mean that when Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, after the 40 days, he goes back up to heaven, that as he's ascending into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, he's making a proclamation He's making a pronouncement. He's, in a sense, preaching to these demonic spirits who are in prison. I don't think Jesus went to hell to preach to them. 
I don't think it's like an evangelistic message that Jesus is going down to preach to people to give them a second chance to come out. And I don't think Jesus is going down to preach to demons to get them to get saved. You can make a proclamation. You can preach without it being evangelistic. Okay, so what type of message did Jesus proclaim to these fallen demons as he's ascending back up to the Father? Okay, that's the the next question. What was his message? Because he proclaimed to them, just says he proclaimed or preached. So did Jesus preach the gospel to the demons? I don't think that would be the purpose of that. Now, there is a Greek word for preaching the gospel. You know what it is in English, to evangelize. In Greek, it's euangelizo, which means to preach the good news in an evangelistic context where you're trying to share the gospel with someone who's not a believer so that they could trust in Christ for salvation. That's the Greek word for sharing the gospel. That's not the Greek word that Peter uses here. He uses another word that means to publicly declare a message. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's preaching a victory message that he has conquered sin, he's conquered death, He's conquered the devil. devil. It is finished. He's risen from the grave. And now he's going back up to be with his father at the right hand. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, as I'm going up, I'm declaring a message of victory to the demons that they did not win, but Jesus won. It's like a message of vindication. Because Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so let's ask the question again. This is the one major proof text for the idea that Jesus went to hell after he died on the cross and before he rose again. What are the different views? Number one, he went to hell to preach to those who didn't have a chance to repent during the times of Noah to give them a chance to believe the gospel and bring him to heaven. I don't agree with that one. Number two, he preached to all the Old Testament believers who were kind of in a holding tank and then he brought them to heaven. I don't see that because it's narrowed only to the days of Noah. Number three, it was Noah who was preaching to the people of his day, but through the Spirit of Jesus empowering Noah to do that. Or three, Jesus is preaching a victory message on his way back up to heaven to those spirits that are in prison right now as a result of what they did during the time of Noah of trying to corrupt the earth. Those are your four views. So I say pick one. Don't be dogmatic. Again, there's some doctrines where you have to just stand up and say, you know what? We may never know what this text means. We can give our best guess, but we're not going to build a theology on it. We're not going to build a dogmatic doctrine on it. We, We can't be dogmatic on it. So I can say, I can say with confidence, I, I reject the fact that Jesus went to hell. And here's my reasons why. I don't know exactly what this verse teaches, But I don't think Jesus went to hell to give people a second chance after they died to come back up to heaven. Because I think the rest of the Bible denies that. Okay, So back to the Apostles' Creed. When the Apostles' Creed says, when you recite the Apostles' Creed, 
should you recite that verse or that that's part of it? I usually don't. Now, here's a way that you can understand what Jesus descended into hell in a different way. Okay? So let me give you another way of understanding the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. You can take it literally as Jesus descended literally into hell, or you can take it this way. When Jesus died on the cross and experienced the full wrath of God, it was as if Jesus was experiencing the depths of hell in those moments. So if you understand it that way, I don't have a problem with it. If you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he was experiencing God's justice and God's wrath that people in hell will experience for their sin. Jesus took that wrath upon himself and it was like hell for Jesus in those moments. I, don't, I have a little problem with that per se, but that, that's a better way of looking at it than Jesus actually descended into literal hell to preach. So first difficult theological subject, did Jesus descend into hell? Now, before I move on and get to the next difficult subject, do you guys have any questions on this at all? Is this all new to you? Never thought of it? Never thought of it, okay. All right. Now, now we come, okay, so let's just talk about this um, in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What happened to that generation of the Nephilim and the people on earth? Who was saved in the flood? Noah and his family entire population of the earth, including this Nephilim, whoever they were, if they were an ungodly race of half-human, half-demons, or if they were just giants, they were on the earth at that time. Every single person on earth besides Noah's family was destroyed. And Jesus talks about His second coming. There's going to be a final day of judgment like in the days of Noah where those who are God's people will be spared and those who are not will be, will be caught up in the, in the judgment. Okay? Now, now we come to the touchy subject of baptism. And what in the world does Peter mean here about baptism? Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Okay. Now, my question is, baptism, which corresponds to this, what's the this that it corresponds to? That Peter uses a very interesting word there. The ESV says corresponds. Uh, the NIV, I think if you have that, says symbolizes. So is Peter making a direct teaching here about baptism, or is he making a symbolic analogy or an illusion or more of a metaphor what's he doing there in other words is noah's flood and baptism similar in some type of way or let me ask it this way is baptism somewhat of a symbol of the flood or is the flood somewhat of a symbol of baptism Okay. 
from God's just judgment. So somehow Peter here is making an analogy because he, anybody have a different translation besides corresponds? Does, what is the, does anybody have a New King James or King James? What, what does New King James say? So back at the beginning, what did he say? Did he say like figure? The like figure. The like figure. Okay. The, the anti. Oh, wow. We got some different words here. Like figure and anti-type and corresponds and analogy. Okay. So, okay. So we got anti-type. That's what is yours? New King James. You've got like figure. The like figure. ESV says what corresponds. What does the NIV say? Symbolizes. Did anybody have the the um, New American Standard? See if it. You want to ch- check it on your phone to see what the New American Standard. Because that's an interest. Somehow, regardless of how we understand this, Peter's making some type of symbolism between Noah's flood and baptism. We got to figure out what that is. Because the ESV says it corresponds. New American Standard. Corresponding. Okay, so corresponding is what ESV and the New American Standard use. Symbolizes is what NIV uses. Like figure, that's New King James. And then anti-type. That helps you a lot, right? Anti-type. Correspond. Okay. Okay. So the question we have to ask is, okay, how does Noah's flood relate to baptism and let's just ask the question that the false teaching or the wrong teaching that some people may get out of this passage we got to ask the question does baptism actually save you so let me ask you the question if you go down under the water and you were not a christian before magically you come up are you now a christian because you've gone under the water Right. Noah's family didn't go into the water. Okay. So let me tell you guys a story. I, I told this last night. I had a friend in college who was from the Church of Christ denomination that believes you have to be saved in order to be baptized. So I asked him a hypothetical question. I said, okay, let's say it's Sunday morning. You bring a friend to church. He doesn't know Jesus. The pastor preaches the gospel. Your friend gets under conviction of sin there's a quote-unquote altar call at the end or a time of decision, and that person gets saved in the worship service. They trust Jesus for salvation. And yet, you had technical difficulties with your baptistry, and you couldn't fill the tank that Sunday morning to baptize him. Even though he professed faith in Christ, he said he became a Christian, but you didn't have a chance to baptize him. So you said, okay, we'll have to fix the baptistry. We'll get it fixed. We'll have an evening service. We'll come back, and we'll baptize him at the evening service. Okay. In between the morning service and the evening service, he gets hit by a he gets in a car wreck and dies. Didn't have a chance to be baptized, but was quote unquote saved. I asked my friend, would he go to heaven or hell? Hypothetically. And he said he would go to hell because he hadn't been baptized. Because he equated baptism with your salvation. So some people do that. No, it would have to be baptized by immersion 
the way we do. I mean, they would baptize the same way we as Baptists would by immersion, but they would say that you're saved by faith in Christ plus your baptism. Now, we would say you're baptized by faith in Christ alone and your baptism is an outward symbol of what's happened to you internally. It doesn't save you, but it's the first act of obedience that you show everybody. You're a Christian. There's tr- that's true. People fear water. Man, when I was baptized as a kid in First Baptist Church of Greenville, Texas, that pastor held me down for a long time. That's back then. I mean, like nowadays when I baptize people, I try not to hold you down too long. Like he went, it's like one, one thousand, two, one thousand. I was like, like, okay, are we going to come up and like, boom. And he said something like, we want to make sure this is not a Methodist baptism, so we're going to keep you down for a long time. Keep you down as a Baptist. So it's like, whoa, okay. So you stay down there a long time. So what is Pete? What was that? No, they sprinkle. That's what, yeah. So what is Peter saying here? Okay, let's just ask the question, does the act of immersion under the water actually save you? And we would have to say, based upon the rest of the Bible, no. What saves you? Simple faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior saves you. No works, no additions, no church membership, no walking an aisle, no this or that. It's, it's only faith alone. So what does Peter tell us here? He says... It's not the removal of the dirt from the body. You see it there? Not as removal of dirt from the body. That's to tell us that the mechanical act of going under the water doesn't bring about salvation any more than getting our hands clean with soap saves us from sin. When you wash your hands, are you getting rid of sin in your life? You're just washing your hands. So what kind of baptism is Peter talking about? Is he talking about a water baptism or is he talking about some type of flood? Risa, you were on the right track. You're thinking logically. What was the thing you said earlier? Moses and his family didn't go under the water. I mean, Noah, yeah. No, Moses didn't go under the water either because he wasn't born yet. I'm thinking of Exodus on Sunday mornings. Noah and his family did not go under the water. Where were they saved? In the ark. Okay, so let me just tell you what the symbolism here is, I think. What Peter is referring to as baptism here is not water baptism that saves you by going under the water. I think what he's talking about is being immersed or in union with Christ as the true ark of our safety and being rescued from impending judgment through Jesus Christ. Anti-type. Type, anti-type. Okay, what was the ark? The ark was the means of salvation for the people of God. God saved His people in the ark. God shut the door. They were saved from wrath. That's what the ark was. Symbolism corresponds to. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the ark. You enter into Him by faith alone. God closes the door so that you're saved forever. You're saved from impending judgment. 
So I don't think Peter here is talking about baptism under the water saves you. I think what Peter's saying is, it's just like when Noah was saved by going into the ark, you're saved by going into Christ and having a relationship with Christ. And you're symbolically, it's kind of a symbolism, the ark to salvation. The ark is Jesus. Jesus is the ark. God's people are saved by going into what God provides as the only way of salvation from wrath. During the flood, was there any other way of salvation besides the ark? There was one way, one door in, and God closed it. Now, Romans chapter 6 talks about more of the spiritual type of baptism, not so much a water baptism, which is very important. So here we go. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So that uniting is faith. When you are baptized into Christ, your old life dies, you get raised to new life, your life is in Christ. So let's ask the question. Based upon the totality of Scripture, what actually saves us? Is it the waters of baptism... Or is it the blood of Christ that cleanses our conscience, the saving work of Christ that forgives our sins? Christ saves. It's His work alone, not baptism that saves. So two false teachings that people get when they misunderstand this passage are what? Jesus descended into hell and baptism saves. So what can we say this passage does not teach? It doesn't teach that baptism saves you, and it doesn't teach that Jesus descended into hell. We can, say it, we, can, we can say we know what it doesn't mean. Now, we may be a little confused on what it actually does mean, but I've done my best tonight to try to explain what I think this passage means. So before we move into chapter 4, are there any questions on these two issues? Okay. Now, for the sake of time, because next week's our last time to meet, until we quit for the summer, and I'm trying to scrunch all these chapters to get together. We're going to move into chapter 4, okay? And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Now, what has Peter just told us about back in verse 18? Since Christ, what? Suffered for our sins. Okay? Now, let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay. Peter's going to root this command for us back in what Jesus experienced on the cross. So what does he say there in verse 4? Arm, 
Does your translation say arm yourselves with the same way of thinking? Arm yourselves. Now, what does that sound like? Arm yourselves. Sounds like military language, right? Pick up weapons. Arm yourselves with what? The same way of thinking. So arm yourselves is the main verb in this passage of Scripture. It means to pick up weapons and to equip ourselves for the reality that we will suffer for being a Christian. In other words, we're to have the same mind as Jesus, to think like Jesus, to be prepared to suffer like Jesus. Did Jesus suffer unjustly? Was Jesus maligned? Was Jesus persecuted? Was Jesus mistreated? So if, if our Savior and Lord was mistreated and maligned and persecuted, would we expect any different treatment as those that follow Him? And the answer is no. Because Jesus told us, a servant's not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So Peter says, listen, you need to be prepared to suffer for being a follower of Christ. So arm yourselves. Get ready for it. It's going to be warfare. And the battle is won in the mind. The way that you think. So let me just stop and ask a question. Most, if not all, the battles that we face as Christians oftentimes take place where? In your mind or in your heart. Before you actually sin, do you not sometimes mull it over in your mind? Think about it. Ponder it. Think of ways to sin. Have wandering thoughts. Things that pop into your mind. Okay. Paul tells us in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, it's interesting, Paul says, be renewed in your mind. He could have said, be transformed by the renewal of your heart. Be transformed by the renewal of your emotions. And there would nothing be nothing wrong with that, but what does he specifically say? Your mind. Your mind has to be renewed. You have to think Christianly, if that's a word, biblically. How do you do that? Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, there's eight things here, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what are we to do? Think about these things. In the original language, that word think means to constantly, continually be meditating upon things that are pure, holy, and good. Where does our mind often focus on? Sinful things, negative things, ungodly things, worldly things. Your mind does not naturally go towards godly things. So you've got to train your mind. You've got to set your mind. You've got to renew your mind. How is that primarily done? 
Where are these good, lovely things found? Well, they're found in the scriptures. So if you're not saturating your mind with the scriptures, other things are going to fill your mind and take its place. Your mind's a terrible thing to waste. No, your mind is a your mind is not a your mind is not just like this thing that doesn't do anything. Whatever goes into your mind is going to shape everything about you. And there's always things going into your mind, whether you know it or not. What you see, what you read, what you hear, what you take in. So Paul says, keep on continually having your mind renewed. How do you have your mind renewed? By thinking about these things. How do you think about these things? Well, you've got to be reading about these things and letting them sink in. Okay, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So where's our minds? Our minds set on things above. Our minds are being renewed. Our minds are being constantly thinking about the pure and godly and glorious things of Christ and His gospel. I'm ashamed sometimes of how much I turn my mind off and veg with things that may not necessarily be bad, but just aren't gospel-saturated things of Christ. What's easier to do? Let me just ask you, what's easier to do? To go home and veg in front of a screen or to truly saturate your mind with the Scriptures and think about the glories of Jesus? What's easier tv or screen whatever screen you use it could be your phone it could be your ipad it could be your computer screen it could be tv it could be hulu netflix whatever your screen is um, screen idolatry it takes concentrated time to actually think about the beauties of christ and you've got to make time i've got to make time for that it doesn't happen naturally it doesn't happen easily and there's so many distractions in this world but if christ is truly our joy if he's truly our life if he's truly our satisfaction if he's truly our treasure we're going to want to fill our minds with things of him so peter here says arm your what does he say here arm yourselves with the same way of thinking of jesus Get ready for the warfare that's going to come when you claim the name of Christ. When you become a Christian, there's going to be warfare. The world, the flesh, the devil are going to come at you like there's no tomorrow. If it's not Satan coming at you, it's your own flesh. If it's not your flesh, it's the world. If it's not the world, it's all three at the same time. So we need to be ready for this. okay? And so when Peter talks about the flesh there, he uses it differently than Paul. So sometimes the word flesh can be used different ways. When Paul uses the word flesh, that, that Greek word sarks, Paul means that part of us that is ungodly and sinful, the, the, the passionate uh, remnants of our old life that well up inside of us. The way Peter uses it here is just living your life in a body. It's like living, living, a human, living life in a human body. So when Peter uses the word flesh here, he's not talking about it in such a negative way that Paul does. He's just talking about, we need to be ready to live life in our bodies and be ready to suffer. Okay. Now, this warfare or weaponry imagery, arm yourselves, arm yourselves for battle. And it's like, arm yourselves. 
it not only implies an intense willingness to be ready to suffer, but it also talks about there's discipline in the Christian life to be Christ-like. We don't often talk about discipline because we're fearful of being legalistic. I'm not here to burden you with any type of legalistic demands that are not from the Scriptures to try to burden you with a list of do's and don'ts that aren't from the Scriptures. But the Bible does talk about training for godliness, disciplining your life. So let me ask you a question. If you never discipline yourselves to get up and to spend time in God's Word, will you grow to be as fruitful of a Christian as you could be? Is the Holy Spirit going to do your quiet time for you? And He's going to motivate you and work in you, but you have to be the one to, to discipline yourself. So Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul says, Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Gymnazo is the actual Greek word there. We get the word gymnastic. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. It doesn't come easily. It has to be something that we train ourselves for. That's why we need the body of Christ. I don't ever think these commands were meant for you to be doing in isolations, for you to hunker down by yourself and try your hardest to do this. I think all these commands are rooted in being the body of Christ. You and I need each other to train ourselves for godliness. That's why you need to be with other believers in the life of the church where others can come alongside you and encourage you and be part of that training. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that are in physical fitness and like to work out and stuff, do you find more motivation when you go to the gym by yourself and kind of grunt it out? Or have you ever been part of CrossFit or something where you've had a group of people training together and you're all working? What gives you more motivation? So I go to the gym every morning, anytime fitness, and there's a couple of guys there that I'm trying to kind of build relationships with. And we somewhat work out together, not really. We're just like next to each other, but we're all doing our individual thing. But this past couple of weeks, um, there's a group of, of senior adult ladies that are training uh, really, really hard. And they're, they're all together and they're like in unison and they're like all encouraging each other. It's, it's brought a whole new vibe. And so I went over to the lap, the lap pull down. I said, are you, are you guys going to use this? Because I want to do a six minute workout. And she said, 60 minute workout. I said, no, a six minute workout. She's like, oh, she's like, no. She's like, this, she's probably like 75, 80 years old. She's, she's like, no, I'm not going to use it, but I'll watch you do it. And I'm like, I'm like okay, that's a little awkward. But anyway, these ladies were all working out together, and you could tell they were like motivating each other. And you could tell if one of those senior adult ladies walked into the gym with a bunch of guys lifting weights, they'd probably be like, I'm not that motivated. And I'm a little intimidated. But when there's four or five of those ladies working out together, there's that strength in numbers where they can train together. And so I think what I'm saying is when these commands come to us, train yourself, we can so individualize this. It's all up to me to train myself. Yes, you individually have to do that, but it's best done in community with other believers coming alongside you and encouraging you and helping you in that. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 24 through 27, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, the way that we can 
do this, and we have to root everything back into what Peter's taught us from the very beginning. It's because we've been born again. It's because we are regenerated. It's because we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you and I, the only way we can train ourselves for godliness, the only way we can arm ourselves with the same way of thinking is because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who gives us the power and the grace to do that. So what Peter is saying here is that as regenerate in verse 2, now that we're born again, now that we're regenerate, now that we're new creations in Christ, we should not live the rest of our lives pursuing ungodly human passions. Notice what he says there. So live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Does anybody have any words there besides human passions? Some, some people say lustful desires. These can be sexual in nature. They don't necessarily have to be. It's any type of lust or greed or desire that's going to take your focus away from God or the will of God. So in reality, what Peter's saying here, as in reality, he's saying there's two ways you can live. You can live to serve your sinful passions by entertaining your lusts, or you can live to obey the will of God. Now, here's what I would say about a true, regenerate believer in Christ. You as a born-again believer, and I as a born-again believer, we may not always live for God, perfectly, obviously. But because we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have been changed, there's always going to be a desire to do it, and there's always going to be the power to do it. And it's going to be the totality of our lives looking that way. A non-Christian does not have the desire to obey God, does not have the power to obey God, and over the totality of their life, it's going to be lived out and evident that they were pursuing fleshly passions. So, in verse 3, Peter's being a little bit sarcastic. He's saying... You've had enough time to engage in sinful passions. Time is up. Um, to his original audience who were in Asia Minor, among all the, the paganism, basically saying, you guys have had plenty of time to be pagan Gentiles living in gross idolatry, more time than you need. You're believers now. Live like believers, not the way you were before as pagan Gentiles. What he's really saying here, guys, in a sarcastic way, He's saying it's virtually impossible for you as a born-again believer who's truly been saved and regenerated to ever go back to a lifestyle of pagan idolatry. If you're truly saved, you won't go back to that as a lifestyle. He's saying that that's your past life. It doesn't define you anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. So he compares two types of people. Those who are regenerate that live for the will of God and those who are unregenerate pagan Gentiles who live for the flesh. Notice the word living. Verse 3. 
For the time that's past suffices to do what the Gentiles want to do, living in. And then he lists these vices that we're going to look at in just a moment. Living in. It's a very strong word there. They were living in these things. They were living in sensuality, living in passions, living in drunkenness, living in orgies, living in drinking parties, living in lawless idolatries. That word in the original language really conveys an idea that it was their ultimate pattern of life. It was their lifestyle, their entire lifestyle. You as a regenerate believer in Christ, that's not your lifestyle. You're not living in those things. Now, it doesn't mean you never sin. It just means that you don't live continually in that lifestyle of lustful desires and the things that he's going to list here. So Peter's got a list of vices here. Oftentimes, Paul gives a list of vices. This is not an exhaustive list. He's just talking about the types of things, the type of lifestyle that non-believers live in. So the first thing he says there is living in sensuality. Does anybody have a different translation besides... Oh, did I skip Romans 13? Let me read Romans 13, 12 through 14. This is Paul's kind of complimentary teaching to what Peter's teaching here. Paul says in Romans 13, 12 through 14, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness... And put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the first one he gives is sensuality. What is sensuality? Well, it means unbridled, out-of-control behavior that could be sexual in nature. It could be violent in nature. It's basically living a life with no self-control. You're just out of control. Okay? Second time, the word passions shows up, which means sinful lusts. Then he talks about drunkenness. And I will say this, just so there's no misunderstanding. Drinking alcohol is not a sin. Getting drunk is. Okay? What do the Proverbs say about drunkenness? Proverbs 21. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Okay? Proverbs 23, 31 through 33. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Now, what's this whole business about orgies and drinking parties? Okay. Sadly, even in our culture today, I've heard stories here in Sterling about Orgies that have happened, usually around the time of the fair. People talk, word gets out. But back in that original audience, they were living in a Greek culture where the Greek god Dionysius or Bacchus was the pagan god of wine and sex. And so here's what would happen. We talked about this when we did Revelation. 
If you worked at a trade guild, let's say you, were, you worked with pottery or you were a blacksmith, part of your job requirement would be to go to one of these parties. And as you show up at the party, it would be a drinking party that would lead to an orgy. If you didn't go to the drinking party, if you didn't go to the orgy, you could lose your job because it was basically part of your job description. So, hey, we're having the company party. You know, come on over. You know, we'll have a few beers. We'll play some board games, watch the game. Okay, actually, it's part of your job to come and participate. Now, if you're a Christian during that time, what do you, what can you not do? <laughs> do that. Okay, so Paul gives a list here about this same thing in Galatians 5, 19-21. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he sums it all up with lawless idolatry. These people were living in a culture that had so many gods and goddesses, so many lewd practices, so much weird stuff going on that basically you were considered intolerant if you made a moral judgment about what's going on in culture. Does that sound familiar? Here's what that culture would have said back then. We've got Dionysius, the god of orgies and drinking. We've got Zeus. He's the god of lightning and kind of the creator god. We've got Poseidon, the god of the sea. We've got Aphrodite, the goddess of love. We've got Hermes, the god of war. You've got Jesus. Your God. We're okay if we all have our own gods. But the moment you Christians start saying Jesus is the only God or the only way, we're going to have a problem. So not much has changed from back then to today. So, lawless idolatry meant no rules, believe whatever you want to believe, have whatever God you want to have. If it makes you happy, do it. As long as it makes me feel good, as long as I quote-unquote don't hurt anybody, I'm going to do whatever I want. And you can do whatever you want, just don't tell me I can't do what I want to do. And don't tell me that your God's the only way. That's lawless idolatry. No rules, all gods are equal. Do what you want to do. Yeah, that's where we live, right? <laughs> that's, that's where we live here in 2019. Okay, could be. Now, because these Christians in Peter's day had made a definitive break with that lifestyle, what ha- what's Peter saying there? Once Peter, and this is in verse um, 4, With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So 
Once Peter's original audience was saved by grace and they were truly born again, there was a noticeable, definitive lifestyle transformation. They made a definitive break with friends and family, and those who they used to, quote, run with were surprised. This word can also mean they were shocked, they were astonished. It seemed strange to them, and this has happened to you. If you, became a, if you had a party and lifestyle before and you became a Christian and your friends are like, hey, let's go, let's go do this, and you don't participate, they're like, now wait a minute. Like, you were the party animal. You were the life of the party. What, what happened to you? Why don't you come join us? And that was kind of what was going on. I was like, now wait a minute. Like a few weeks ago, you guys were worshiping Bacchus, and a few weeks ago you were going to the orgy and drinking parties, and now you're not? What happened? Well, Jesus happened. That's what they would say. I got saved. I've made a definitive break with that. I, I can't go back. And they're going to start making fun of you. They're going to start maligning you. Now, how does Peter describe that whole list? They don't want to join in you into a flood of debauchery. Does yours say flood? Dissipation, but the word flood, yeah, debauchery. Dis- Flood's a good translation in the ESV because it really means an indulgent out pouring or overflowing dissipation debauchery out of control what peter's saying is this means a person's mind and heart and life have become so corrupt so wicked that all they can think of is how to make provisions for the flesh and engage in sinful lust they've lost all self-control they are under a flood and they can't get out it's not like they've tipped their toe in the deep end, like in this shallow end of the pool. They've gone headlong into the deep end, head under the water. This is what they're swimming in, and they don't want to get out. Okay? So Peter's saying, if, you, if your lifestyle is not demonstrably different than the world around you, you need to take a good inventory to see if you're truly saved, because you can't, as a Christian, Go back to that lifestyle. Doesn't mean you won't be tempted. Doesn't mean you may not fail at times. It doesn't mean that you may actually backslide. But it means that for the totality of your life, you're walking in newness. And if you kind of end up going back there, God's going to discipline you and get you back. Because it's not where you belong. You belong over here. And what does Peter say in verse 5 about these people? What does verse 5 say? They will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. They're going to have to give an account on Judgment Day on how they lived. Okay? Now, verse 6 is another difficult interpretation that some people have kind of gotten confused with. For that is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, does that mean that once somebody's dead, the gospel was preached to them to give them a second chance to get out? Is it somehow saying that, let me turn the page here, somehow saying that after death there's another chance for sinners to respond to the gospel? Is that what he's saying there? No, obviously not. What does it mean? It basically means that to Peter's original audience, there were those who heard the gospel preached to them and they died. As basic as that. Okay? They didn't have a chance to. They died without receiving the gospel. The gospel was preached to them, but they, they died. Okay? 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The term judged in the flesh Peter uses there basically means that these people are all people experience physical death. But for the Christian, we aren't just going to experience physical death. We'll, we'll experience eternal life the way that God does in the Spirit. Now, let me just kind of, when he talks there, he says, Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So there are going to be those that die in their sins and will face judgment. Believers will be raised on the last day in the twinkling of an eye and will live forever with God. That's basically what Peter's saying there. Uh, Romans 14.8 If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Now I'm plagued with a question. It goes back to verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. When you think about arming yourselves, what do you normally arm yourselves with? Armor or weapon. Okay, so the question I have to ask is, what's the weapon? What are we to arm ourselves with? If we're truly to arm ourselves with thinking like Jesus, what's the ultimate weapon? And here's my answer. It is the gospel. What did Peter in the passages just before us remind us of? Back up in verse 18 of chapter 3. Christ suffered. Christ died for the unrighteous. Christ brought us to God. Jesus was raised again. He's Lord over all. So, the weapon that we use to fight the battle is the gospel. The good news message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question is, how do you continually arm yourself with the gospel? Okay? You read it, you saturate yourself in it, you think about it, you preach it to yourself every day, you sit under preaching of it. One of the things, if you come to Emmanuel long enough, that you probably, hopefully, don't get sick of, maybe you do, and that's okay, but I'm not going to stop doing it. Um, there probably is not a Sunday that goes by that you're not in our worship service going to hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel. Why are we so repetitive at the gospel? Why do we camp out on the gospel over and over again? Why, why do we do that? Because we need to hear it. We need to know it. We need to believe it. We need to be saturated. It's our weapon. 
it's, it keeps us centered. It keeps us sane. It keeps us balanced. So that's why it's always coming back to the gospel. Because Paul says, for I am not ashamed, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the, to the Greek. So Peter commands us to arm ourselves to think like Jesus and be prepared to suffer. This could mean facing hostility. It could mean persecution. It could mean face being made fun of, alienation, hostility that comes from indwelling flesh, the devil, the world, all these things that are going to come at you. Regardless of all the opposition that comes at you, we're helpless without the gospel. So we need to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus suffered for us. He died in our place. He rose again. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We're accepted in His sight. He's granted us new life. We're forgiven. That needs to be part of your thought process every day. Because if not, what are you going to be tempted to do? You're going to be tempted in two ways. Number one, you're going to be tempted to despair. You're going to be tempted to feel guilty and despair and helpless. Or you're going to be tempted to feel prideful and think you can do it all on your own power. So there's two temptations that you walk with every day. Temptation number one, I can live life in my own power and I'm self-sufficient. Thank you very much, Jesus. I'll give you lip service, but I got this handled. That's why you need the gospel because you can't. Other temptation is, I feel so defeated, I feel so low, I feel so frustrated, I feel so assaulted, Jesus could never love me, I'm not even going to attempt to live for Christ because it's not worth it. Both of those are temptations, they're ditches you fall into. What the gospel does, it gets you back to the center and says, no, you're right, you can't do it, but Christ can. You're right, you're a sinner, but God died, or Christ died for you and God loves you. So you've got to keep reminding yourselves, arming yourselves with this way of thinking that the gospel is what keeps me balanced and sane and from falling into the ditch of legalism and despair or pride or, or all these different things. So my prayer for you is your life this week your, would be that um, this would be your prayer. I aim to please my God and do His will this week and I can only do it because of Jesus and the gospel. Any questions? Yes, Nick. So when we were talking about the things uh, that Peter was saying, the rivalries came up in him. Uh-huh. Is that like regular rivalries? Like you'd have like a brother who would kind of leave each other? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, rival rivalries would be like, a deep, not like a sports rivalry where like ah, I hate the hate the Raiders. Type. It's it's like a deep seated. You're at you're at odds with somebody, and it's deep seated, and you maybe have gotten sides, and it's not resolved, and it's it's just causing dissension either in a family or in a church, and there's like two groups that are always going at each other, and there's no common ground at all. Does that make sense? Not like a, no, it's not like a friendly sibling rivalry where it's like, hey, yeah, we kind of have a friendly competition. I, you know, he, he made 10 free throws in a row and I'm going to make 11 or, you know, he got an A and I'm going to, you know, he got a B and I'm going to get an A, a plus. 
it's not like a friendly, it's more like this is a deep-seated, really nasty, ongoing feud dissension where you've gotten people on your side, they've gotten people on their side, and it's just a never-ending like battle. Anybody else? All right, we're going to finish we're going to finish first Peter next week. And we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm not going to cover the, the entire I'm not going to be able to cover all of first Peter. So, I'm going to cover what I think is important. The rest of it I preached these series of messages back in 2009, 10 years ago, when we first moved into this building. I think they're still on the internet, so you can probably go catch a few of them on the church's website of the ones that you missed if you want to go listen to them. But you have to search under the First Peter, or, or, or probably by date, probably around the summer of 2009 is when these... So this is material that's been preached at Emmanuel, but some of you probably... Casey, how old were you 10 years ago? You were probably, what, 11? She was like, what, 9? Yeah, so she, was not, so she heard these messages, but she was only 9 years old. So... Um, Rico, you may have been back here during the day. but So this is material I've preached here before, but I'm teaching it to you because, hey, you weren't here 10 years ago, and even if you were here 10 years ago, you probably forgot everything I preached. Probably forgot everything I preached last week, so you teach it again. All right, well, let's, let's pray, and then we'll be good to go. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We do want to be people that follow you, Jesus, that are empowered by your Holy Spirit, that we live for you, that we don't live for our flesh. Uh, that we arm ourselves with the gospel, that our minds are transformed by your word. Um, Help us by the power of your spirit to go be those people this week that live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.